Hello and welcome back to The Game Pit. This is episode 142. My name's Sean and here's Ronan. Hello everyone, you're very welcome back after our hiatus. As always happens, just before Essen we have a big flurry of activity getting previews out and then... It takes us a while to get some games played, but this is going to be the start of uh, two or three episodes coming out hot on the heels, each covering different content. For this one, Sean, it is a pit spit, and we're looking at uh, a majority of games that came out at Essen, but perhaps not the deeper, longer games, because we're saving those for one or two episodes time. Yeah, I think we've deliberately made that conscious decision to keep, keep the more meaty games and the ones that we would have to delve deeper into for a picking over the bones episode right uh, this one is one of our pit spits and as we say we like to spit out those games rather quickly a light brushing of oil <laughs> is that what we're calling it yeah i don't know what type of oil you're gonna have to make that up for yourself while i break my microphone okay so it's gonna be 12 not necessarily like tiny games they're not fillers there's some proper games in there and in fact you've got quite a long one going on but not sort of the big hitting, big names coming out of uh, SM. For example, in a couple of weeks' time, we've got like the likes of Paladins of the West Kingdom and Maracaibo and Aquatica and things like that. They're coming. These ones a little bit quicker. And in between, perhaps some solo games and another episode. Anyway, enough about what we're going to do, Sean. This one, are you excited to be back on the mic? I am. It's been, it's been a while. I haven't even been doing any pit spits. So uh, life post-SM has been quite hectic for me. So I'm glad to... Get back on that horse, shall we say. Are you doing a Joe Marler? Get back on the horse, but you can lead it to water, but you don't make it drink. But he, no, did you see that? I, I know I know he's rather insane, shall we say? <laughs> Get immediately Google Joe Marler horse interview. Right. <laughs> he gave it the other day. It's amazing. You think it's going off track, and then he pulls it back via several loops of insanity into something that's just, you're still talking, mate. You're still talking about horse. I don't know what you're talking about. It's amazing. Anyway, enough about rugby playing interviews. Sure, do your little thingy and we'll crack into some quick reviews. So as always, we are very proud members of the Dice Tower Network. Go there for gaming goodness galore. And don't forget that we now have the Pit Spit videos as part of the Dice Tower feed itself. So if you want to see our Pit Spit videos from now on, go to the Dice Tower. Jolly good. We might still be putting some videos out on our own channel, still trying to work around that. It might be some playthroughs or things that we've, we haven't done so many of before. But anyway, yeah, check out the Dice Tower. It's the first time we've announced it on the podcast. You can't really say, don't forget, Sean. Okay, fair enough, fair enough. Good shout. It's a long time since I've done this. <laughs> Big announcement. Our pit spits are now on the Dice Tower YouTube channel. <laughs> Ta-da! <laughs> Thanks for the brass section. Right. The first game we're going to talk about, both of us played in the Essen Hall, sneaking in a bit early and getting a very quick game in early in the morning. It's Runestones. Two to four player game, 60 minutes, designed by Rudiger Dawn from Queen Games. In this game, you're all druids and you've got to start with a little deck of cards and you're going to be bringing new cards in and throwing cards out of that deck in order to collect gems, in order to build artifacts, in order to be the first player to score a set number of points. We played uh, the shortened two-player version and but lots of people were playing it and we can at least give you a, an idea of how it went. So from your hand of four cards, you're going to play 
at least one down and they all have a value of power on them. They generate power in a certain color. You need to play cards of the same color as each other. There's four colors and there's wild. And they will allow you to buy cards from a market. It's a sliding market from left to right. And the longer that a card has been in that market, the cheaper it is going to be. Then you may use exactly two cards you have left over in your hand for their powers. But the trick on this is that every single card has got a different number on it. And when you use two cards for their powers, you must discard completely out of your deck the one that's got the highest number on there. So you're not just judging what powers to use, you're judging which card you wish to retain. And that's why you're going to have to constantly buy in them at the beginning of each of your turns, otherwise you'll run out of cards. Now, a lot of these cards allow you to do things that collect different colors of gems. And the reason you're collecting different colors of gems is that there is another market of artifacts of different colors which go out and they go into spots and they tell you what color of gems you must spend in order to take the artifacts. And for those artifacts, when you claim them, they fill up two rows in your board. They're of different colors. And when you hand in sets of different colors, you get to claim the rune stones that we're talking about. And you score some VP at the same time. And the runestones are going to give you super duper special powers for the rest of the game. And you choose which power you get. Increase your hand size, increase your power, get free gems, whatever it might be. So that you're ramping up as you go. Building up and discarding out of your deck. And then ramping up your runestone powers in order to score VP and win the race to win the game. Sean, I say that we played it together. But in all honesty, from my opinion of the play of runestones, you may as well not have been there. <laughs> Thanks for that. Okay. Not personal. <laughs> it didn't need anyone else to be there. No, it did. It was it was very head down, very uh, solo. I had, I had this very similar experience. Uh, uh, Gearstones I just recently attended, where a game that I thought was going to be quite interactive very head down and this one definitely meets that criteria it was chocolate factory it was very very head down didn't really care what anyone else was doing at all and this one was very much the same the only time you might look up is to see what runestone a person was going to choose because obviously there's only a, a certain amount of them but yeah other than that you you are very very head down i felt the game itself was was quite cluttered there was lots of things going on I think the card management system on its own, once you got your head around it, was, was quite clear and quite clean. But everything around it was kind of hazy and fuzzy. And you had to kind of stop what you were doing in that mechanism to go and look at the other things. Well, what shall I do now? And, and did it really matter? I think uh, the looks, to me, it, the individual components were quite nice. The issue with that of, oh, I'm in a position now where I can buy an artifact. Oh, I'm in a position now I can get a runestone. I, I'm not for myself it wasn't necessarily the layout of the physical components it was that everything didn't really matter and everything was a bit soulless and at the end of the day if I got a load of gems if I looked across I, I can buy something and it didn't make a massive difference what I bought mm. so everything was very like the cards I got I didn't really care because they were out of my deck so quickly because you really have a really small deck you're talking about eight, nine, ten cards when you draw four each turn because they're going out so quickly. And then, yeah, the artifacts, it really doesn't matter what they are, apart from, you know, you're trying to get not all the same colour, which is pretty easy. So everything was very throwaway in the game. I didn't get any investment in any of my actions. What you said about the artifacts is you just were collecting artifacts. Then when it got towards the end, when you needed that set collection, you're looking to see which ones you need now to finish off the set. But before that, you weren't really bothered. When it comes to actually getting the, the runestones themselves... 
it was a case of look up. They're all much of a muchness. Or, ah, I'll take that one. Whatever. Yeah, that's going to help me. Brilliant. And then you, and then you rinse and repeat, and that within the game itself, I was already feeling it was starting to get repetitive. Never mind subsequent plays. So I don't know how each play beyond that one would change, Roland. Well, we're being quite negative about it, Sean. I was trying to throw some positives in there. It's very quick turns, very quick play. But quick play, actually, at the end of the day, in this case, to me, was to the detriment of the experience. A a summary for you, I don't think there's going to be any uh, surprises in here on Runestones. I didn't begrudge my play of Runestones, right? Another one for a box cover quote. I didn't begrudge my play. (laughs) It was was immensely interesting. It held my interest in, in that sort of moment that we were playing i didn't sort of want to be going away doing anything else massively quickly but it was certainly a game that i wouldn't want to to own personally i'd play it but i have no need to have it in my collection yeah i think when i was looking for the word to sum it up it was bland it was okay it wasn't offensive if if someone wanted me to play again i'd play again but i have no need to play it again it was an absolute middle of the road experience it was functional i was doing some things i had some very mild decisions to make didn't matter who else was around the table and then it was gone and i'm not fussed if it ever comes back again but it's not awful and that was a fairly <laughs> negative start for rune stones sean the next one was one that we previewed with some excitement yes we did it was paranormal detectives coming from Lucky Duck Games, designed by Simon Malinsky, Adrian Orzichowski, and Marcin Lesinski. And what you are in Paranormal Detectives is you are paranormal detectives around a body of somebody who's recently deceased. Now, one player is going to play the ghost of that person, and they are trying to desperately con- convey to you how they died, whether they were murdered, whether it was accidental, we, nobody knows apart from the ghost. So the way they're going to convey that is by using various cards. And what happens is the detectives are going to prompt the ghost by playing a card. And that can be arrange a piece of string. Um, There's a Ouija board. You can sort of mouth the word. You can make a ghostly apparition and mouth the word. You can make a noise. There's tarot cards. You can even draw on somebody's back. And again, to prompt what the ghost is actually going to... The information the ghost is going to give you the detectives have to ask an open-ended question. So, what kind of work did you do? Where were you when you died? That kind of thing. And you only get very basic information at the beginning. There are two ways to play this. You can play a competitive game where everyone is secretly hoarding their guesses as to what it is and the ghost is going to mark you uh, how, how well you've done. Or you can play it cooperatively where everyone just jumps in together and everyone sort of puts a pulls their thoughts and guesses as to what's happened together. And that's essentially Paranormal Detectives. It's a very open party game, Mysterium-esque going on. There is a bit of Mysterium in there with the tarot cards, Ronan, but it's a lot more physical than Mysterium. It's a fun group activity. It felt less actually gamey to me than Mysterium did. In Mysterium, you got a bit more structure in this, because people are making up their own questions and then there's all the different ways in which the ghost has to give the information back, it felt more like a, a actual traditional game. Uh, but, you know, And because the you don't know if you're getting right or wrong, so you're not always exactly sure where you're going, it did feel more like everyone was 
have an activity rather than that full competition of or cooperation actually of playing a uh, what we'd say a proper game sean it did yeah activity is probably the right word for it now there were some things that i've heard people uh, weren't comfortable with like the drawing on the back so do you feel like it's it's a game where you you have to know everybody around the table Ronan? do you think you can play this with strangers I think you're perfectly able to play it with strangers. It's just that the person who's introducing the game has to make it clear and has to make it not awkward to anyone. If they say, look, I'd rather not do that. I don't want anyone holding my hand. You, you can even take those cards off them and give them a different card. It's possible to swap around if, if you've got less than the maximum number of players. I think there's ways around it, but if I was to introduce it to a group of strangers, I would be aware that that content was in their physical contact and make sure that everyone was happy with that. So one of the things... <laughs> Any game like this, whether it be Dixit, Mysterium, this kind of deduction game, I think what it brings is is the craziness in people's minds to the fore. There's always that moment of like, why did you think that would link to that? You were killed by a, a beetle flying up your nose. Why did you draw a giraffe? Well, we were next to the zoo and we were, the giraffe enclosure was next to the beetle enclosure and the beetle enclosure escaped because the giraffe fell over. What?! I think you've been playing it too much with a seven-year-old. <laughs> that's what that's what that sounds like to me. I actually thought there was less room for lunacy because there's specific answers on the card and you, you need to ask fairly specific questions in order to get anywhere near. Now, I know people have said that it's too hard. I wonder if they're trying, if it's too difficult to work things out, to ask too general a question so that they're not giving away too much information, so that people really are left a little bit in the dark? I've only played it cooperatively, because we are playing, as you said, with that seven-year-old, so it's unfair to sort of put, lump him on his own. So we've played it three or four times cooperatively, and that seems to be a lot easier, because obviously you're pooling ideas together, and, and people, more heads are better than one. So we've not found it too difficult. I would have to bow to you in terms of whether you think it's uh, too difficult in the in the in competitive mode, Rhoda, but we certainly didn't find it. I think that you have to be, or if I was going to say someone's try it, try two or three scenarios because we had three scenarios that went really well the way you were thinking and you kind of worked out and people, we all got it. Now I've been playing it with my family. So obviously people think more alike when you're in a family situation and, and certain clues are easier to give. I think with strangers, it would be that notch up harder. Also, but we did play one scenario away from those three that was just, everyone knew what was going on. Everyone knew exactly what the story was and how the person had died. And it was getting the five specific answers in the right order according to what was on the card. And to be honest, once the ghost revealed what the exact answer was, we'd all said those words left, right, here and there. And that felt a bit flat. So it can be very scenario specific how hard it is, but also how much fun it is. So I think that's something to be aware of. Very good. And... Lucky Duck are releasing loads of extra scenarios, aren't they, each month uh, on online. So you're not going to run out of those scenarios. So hopefully they can adapt and tailor those scenarios uh, with feedback given. That would be a great idea because 
it's really, really good fun. And I, I was playing slightly devil's advocate there, talking about it and putting out a couple of problems here and there and situations where it might not work. The fact is, in the right situation, and I've been able to play it in the ideal situation with family, everyone chilling out after a meal, we don't really want to play a full game. Or oh, let's play Paranormal Detectors again because we're doing different things and we're thinking in different ways. And you have got that opportunity of, what are you doing? What is that? I've got no idea what that is. To a lesser degree than Pat predicts it and stuff, but it's still there and you're still having fun. And then it's how competitive people are doing, going for how hard the questions are going to be. Or indeed, sometimes down to the ghost who's sort of DMing a little bit and trying to make sure that the level is right at the table to make sure everyone is enjoying themselves. So if you do play it once and it doesn't go smoothly, I'd suggest just try it again because there's a slightly varied experience but on the whole, a very positive experience. It's the sort of game we're going to pull out Christmas Day, Boxing Day, New Year's Day, coming up over the holidays, and have loads of fun, have laughter, and have stories coming out of it. And at the end of the day, it's it hasn't got the blandness of runestones. I will remember every separate game of Paranormal Detectives. It creates gaming memories, and that's a very important thing. Well, so that really was box cover material. Gushing, I would say. <laughs> yeah, what Ronan said, it is a great group stroke family entertainment. Christmas is coming up. I can't think of a better way to get everyone around the table enjoying themselves, all working together or against each other, however it may be. But yeah, Paranormal Detectives is, is a definite hit within the pit. Now, Ronan has been playing some of the hotness and if you know Ronan, you'd be absolutely shocked that he'd have been on board with this game. What? what an LCG? <laughs> Me? An no. LCG? You? No. <laughs> Another 40 kilos of cardboard to weigh down a shelf somewhere. But not yet, because it's brand new, but it will be. And it's Marvel Champions. It's one to four player cooperative game taking 60 minutes from Michael Boggs, Nate French and Caleb Grace and Fantasy Flight Games. And it's Marvel and it's an LCG. And in the game, you're going to have a villain. The game itself comes with three villains at the moment, Rhino, Claw, and Ultron. And the villain has got a scheme that they are attempting to do. So in the base setup, it's Rhino, and they are breaking into a shield facility to steal some vibranium. That villain has got their own deck, which is filled with all different cards. And it's got a HP setting, depending upon a hit point setting, depending upon how many players are playing against the villain. And... Basically, what the hero is trying to do is get the villain's hit points down to zero, possibly, in fact, definitely more than once through the course of the game because the villain will get stronger every time you defeat it uh, before the villain is able to complete their scheme. Each player takes the role of a hero. Within their deck that they get, they're going to get hero cards specific to the actual hero themselves, and it comes with Spider-Man, Iron Man, She-Hulk, Black Panther, and Iron Man. Did I say that twice? You may have said Iron Man twice, yes. Uh, you might get two Iron Men in there if there's been a misprint. Brilliant. And I might have forgotten Captain Marvel, and I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Within the, with those hero cards, you also get an aspect set of cards, be it aggression or... I've forgotten the names. Protection and things like that, which makes it to give you a style for that hero, so that they're fighting in a particular style. And then you also get some basic cards, which generally just generate all the different types of resources in the game. I'll make sure there's some balance, and that that deck is functional very much more set 
down a line than you get usually with these LCGs. Also within your hero deck, you get a Nemesis, which gets off to one side. It's a little tiny mini deck, which may come into play during the course of the game. It varies. And you also get an Obligation, which goes in the villain deck, which is very thematic to who your character is and something that may come up during the game and distract you from your main task. Your hero is represented by a card. That card is double-sided. You can be hero side or alter ego side. And which side you are, you can flip once during the course of your round. And that dictates certain actions you can take. It also dictates what the villain will do, responding to whether you're out as a hero and it comes to attack you, or you're hiding as an alter ego, giving the villain time to scheme and to get some threat on the scheme that they're trying to do. Okay. You have a hand of cards. The number of cards you have in your hand is dependent upon whether your hero or alter ego status at the beginning of your turn. And then you're going to pay for these cards to put them into play. And cards pay for other cards. They all have a set of resources at the bottom. And they all have a cost of resources. You can discard them out of your hand to play them and put them into play. What sort of cards do you have? As a hero, you've got events which happen one-off. You've got allies which will come into play with you. And they'll be able to attack, defend, and thwart with you. Attacking to do damage to the villain. Defending to prevent you from getting damage. And thwarting to remove that threat from the scheme so the villain doesn't win. You also get upgrades which are generally specific to your own hero like web shooters or Captain Marvel's helmet or certainly as Iron Man lots and lots of upgrades as well as Black Panther getting your claws and stuff. There are also support cards which would be thematically the things which are in the background like aren't made for Spider-Man and so on. You can choose to do one of four things on your turn. You can recover your health if you're in your alter ego because if everyone's hit points get reduced to zero when they're attacked by the villain and the villain's minions, then everyone is lost. You can also choose to attack to do damage to minions or to the villain itself. You can thwart, like I said, to remove that threat from the scheme. Or you can choose to defend in your hero form if the villain comes and attacks you, which they will. On the villain's turn, they're going to either attack heroes if they're out as heroes, or they're going to put threat on the scheme if they're as alter egos. They're then all going to play a one card per player, usually, depending upon schemes in play, which will bring these henchmen and their own upgrades and indeed their own events into play. Defeat that villain more than once, get it down to zero before the scheme fills up with threat and you'll be victorious. Otherwise, the villain would have carried out their nefarious scheme and got away scot-free. Sean, we played it a couple of times together, and at least one of those times was with, with the right rules. Yes, Ronan likes to add in some more difficult homebred rules so that when we do play the game correctly, it feels a lot lighter and a lot easier, don't, don't you, Ronan? I think it's a tactic. I thought I'd ramp it up a bit and make you miserable so that when the actual <laughs> game we played, you feel a bit happier about how it went. But that was just the first play. There's been several plays since then with the right rules. Don't worry about that. And to me, this is very much set up as an introduction into LCGs by Fantasy Flight. It's a scaled-down version of their other cooperative games. They've got Lord of the Rings and Arkham Horror. They've made it smooth. They've made it very fast. They've given very simple objectives in this base set. You're doing very simple things in order to get victory. But to me, that's removed some of the interactivity, which makes some of their other games interesting as someone who's played a lot of lcg sean now you haven't played as many what were your thoughts on that just quickly i've got a quick question for you a lot of people are saying this is exactly the arkham horror game but just transferred over to marvel 
Now, as somebody who has owned the Arkham Horror LCG for a long time and obviously never played it, did, is there any similarities or are they completely different games? The, I mean, yeah, there's some similarities in that you each take on a role and you're attempting to defeat a something or get something achieved. That's what, you know, a co-op, I guess, card game has to be like. In terms of actual gameplay and how similar they feel, it's it's miles apart. It's like saying Agricola feels like, think of a very simple worker placement game. <laughs> so it feels like animal upon animal. Well, you're both putting things down on the board that are made of wood. Yeah, but in very different ways. Arkham LCG is, and it has obviously had a longer time to develop, is got so many things in there it's throws so many different challenges at you uh, and you really can't expect what's coming next and not necessarily in terms of rules but just wow we're getting pulled in, in 100 different directions and every single scenario is very different and you have to think through it very differently this has not got that depth and to me did not feel like a similar gaming experience despite having a similar i guess structure to it so going back to your original question, how did I feel as somebody who isn't really an LCG player, I say, I did see that it was it was a little bit simpler. It didn't overwhelm me with sort of contradictions to rules as, as they do with um, buzzwords that Fantasy Flight lead to do, like to put on the cards, like keywords. It wasn't like 300 keywords and I have to keep asking you, Rona, what does this keyword mean? What does this keyword mean? That was, that I did appreciate I did appreciate that there was a clear goal, but I did. I didn't feel like we we were necessarily working together as much as I I have seen us do in in other LCGs. Like we we have played Lord of the Rings together, and that one, I, even though I didn't like the game, we were definitely working together a lot more. Yeah, it was more. I'll do this, you'll do that. There's that specific problem. In this, it dictates what your problems are. So if a, if a minion comes out, it is on a person, and it's more or less down to them to deal with it. There, there is the ability to request actions on turns, stuff like that, but it's, it definitely is not, we're looking at this overall, here's several things to deal with. It's just, are we fighting or are we thwarting for the most part? One of the things that is said to me, and I know that everyone doesn't love Sentinels of the Multiverse, but one of the things said about it is that when you're playing Sentinels of the Multiverse and everyone knows the game, you feel like the X-Men. and As you get better, you feel like you'll be able to combo your powers together better. So the other story is, you know, Colossus picks up Wolverine and lobs him into a battle while Storm fries something with her lightning, which then sets up something else for Iceman and all the rest of it. And that, not I'm labouring the point now, that wasn't quite here. Okay, what was here, though, is each of the heroes does at least feel like a different experience when you start playing with them. Yeah, so I've only played Spider-Man and Captain Marvel thus far, and definitely uh, different experiences going on. I think the one that everyone's talking about is Iron Man, very thematic in that as Tony Stark, you're the brains and you're, you're putting things together for when you do put on the suit and turn into Iron Man, you've got loads of gadgets that you've accumulated as Tony Stark. So that, that sounds really thematic. I'm sure She-Hulk is the tank and she's going to just smash things maybe. I don't know, Renick can tell me but certainly the ones i've played were very much like the character themselves yeah and you got like a thing with black panther whereby 
he pulls out his equipment and then he's got a specific Wakanda Forever card. When he plays it, it triggers all of his equipment. So it's kind of like he's stalking in the shadows and then bam, 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 quick attack. And then he's backwards again and then bam, 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 quick attack. So that feels cool. Uh, with Captain Marvel, she's got that ability to really charge up her energy massively and then do a huge attack. So... I mean, it's difficult because all you know. Once you know these heroes, they're all of different power levels, and obviously Captain Marvel is one of the most powerful ones. So she can feel like a little bit underpowered when she's pulling around, but she's got that ability to at least sometimes feel massively powerful and just shoot off loads of energy at once. She can store energy from cards and stuff. So uh, it's really nice that they've they've made an attempt to make everything feel a little bit different they've done it with the villains as well they all feel slightly different and work in different ways the other big plus for me was coming on the back of complaints especially about lcgs but from lots of fantasy flight products there's a lot of gameplay in the box there, there is because as you said you've got the different characters each character you can play multiple times and, and, and tweaks different things in different ways you got the different villains they're all going to play slightly different so there is a lot of gameplay in that box you don't really have to have that much in terms of components just a few decks of cards give this one the longevity and it's going to get it and it's going to get the expansions and it's going to be put lots and lots more into it so sean probably rarely an lcg that might be aimed more at your market than my market what are your thoughts on Marvel Champions initially? My my thoughts are, if I was inclined to be an LCG collector, this might kick off the habit. Uh, definitely easy to get into, easy to grasp. There, there was enough there to give you that sort of that meat on the bones of a game. However, the game that kind of stops me going out and rushing to buy Marvel Champions is that I already own Marvel Legendary. So I, I think that gives me a very similar experience. And I already like and know the Legendary system. I like, I like the, way, the way it all sets up and the card drafting element. Like you can build your deck rather than just have that deck ready to go. So I think that stops me buying this. But without that there, I probably would go out and buy this. That is interesting. For me, Marvel Champions, it's impossible for it to rival Lord of the Rings and Arkham Horror yet because there's so much content for those games. So it, it also the, other, the difficult thing coming to it is it's very easy to expect too much because being familiar with them, I'm like, oh, that experience in the Marvel Universe, amazing. I couldn't be happier. It's, it's a strong start for what it is, but my expectations are rather tempered. And the reason I think that Legendary currently provides a rival to it is because they haven't done what an LCG could do. And that is to provide much more depth and much more variety and challenge and a much different way of playing. And each time you come across something and, and at almost every card that turns over, you, you stop and you think and you go, right, how has that changed the current status quo? When a card turns over currently Marvel Champions, you say, yeah, it's one of the three things that could possibly have come out and it's very similar to deal with than all the other ones are. I don't have to adjust what I'm doing. I just have that's one more thing to deal with. So when a side scheme comes out, I'm thwarting it the same way that I would thwart the main scheme. It's just stopping me from thwarting the main scheme. So that makes decisions a little bit more obvious. Now, that's talking it down a bit, but you've got to come in from the fact that I was 
super, super hyped for it. So it's brought me down a bit. It has the ability to bring me back up again. But for what it's doing, it's a very good beginner's entry into the LCG area of play. If you've ever been intimidated by them, the Marvel Champions box gives you lots of play and is not overwhelming. But for me, I'm going to carry on playing currently for the theme rather than for the gameplay, hoping that they build on this system. So there you go. That's Marvel Champions. Lovely. Okay, so we're going to go into Minecraft. Well, now with Minecraft Builders and Biomes, designed by Ulrich Blum and coming from Ravensburger. So this is very much an attempt to re-implement the computer game or the video game Minecraft onto the board game format. So what you have on the on the table in front of you is you've got a block made up of smaller blocks, and that's your building materials. There are sandstone, wood, and emerald. Emerald is a wild card. You have your own player mat, which is a 3x3 grid, and that's where you're going to place buildings. So the buildings are all placed in stacks in a grid on the table, and around that grid are going to be treasure chests where you can pick up weapons to fight the mobs, or mobs or monsters as, as they appear. Very simply, on, on a turn, you are going to move between intersections of that grid on the table with your player character. You can move uh, one or two spaces. And then when you get to an intersection, if everything isn't turned face up, you turn it face up, and sometimes buildings will appear, and sometimes mobs will appear. And if, you get to, if you've gone to the edge of the, the intersection... Oh, hold on. Mobs. Yes, yes, I've, I've seen that. It's my, The Minecraft community is... is Re- rejecting mobs, apparently, according to my son. Well, they're mobile. I'm sorry, Sean. It's official. I don't. I, this whole thing's invalid. Uh, mobs or mobs, whatever. So, the, and at the if you go to the edge intersection, you turn up and it's, uh, the, turn over the chest, and that reveals a weapon that you can fight the mobs or the mobs with. Why are you doing this? So you, your other actions you can do are to take some of those cubes from the giant cube in, in that's off to the side. And the rules for that is you can, you have to be able to see the top and two sides of that cube. So you start off only being able to take the corner ones. And as, as the game goes on, you can take more and more. You are trying to build buildings by paying in the, the correct cubes to build the buildings. Or you can additionally fight the mobs. And you do this by, you have in your hand to start with, two weapons and three rotten potatoes. I don't know why. But that's what you have, and they, they're your cards that sort of make your deck less effective. You're going to turn over three of those cards, and if you get enough firepower with your weapons, you kill the mob, and they give you a instant power and potentially an end-of-game power. And if you if you don't, if you get too many potatoes, then you don't, and the mob stays there for the next round. And that's why you'd be collecting more weapons at the edge of the grid. You are collecting buildings and putting them onto your player mat to score points at the end of three rounds. The round ends when the top layer, the second layer, and the third layer of the cube block uh, disappear. So when the top layer, you score the first. So the first thing you're going to score is for the biome. It's the, the area that you are in, and you are trying to put them in orthogonally adjacent places on your own player mat, and you're going to score for your longest connecting area of those biomes. Then you are going to look at the building material that is used, and you're going to score for the connecting 
tiles on your player board for the building materials. And lastly, on the third row, when that's over, you're going to score for the type of building that you've built. So you're, you can't rest on your laurels in this game. You have to constantly think, right... In the third round, if I connect those two together, I'm going to score. But at the moment, I'm not going to score. So maybe I want to connect something else around to it. So you've got to think on your feet. You can't just sit with the first buildings you build and score consistently for them. Very, very quick overview of Minecraft builders and biomes, Ronan. How much do you know about Minecraft? What's your history with it? And what do you think were your initial thoughts on the game? So my history with Minecraft itself, Sean, I remember when it first came out itself on the PC and it wasn't this obvious massive hit when it first came. It was just a really super hard with weird graphics survival game in which I started playing it and every time the first night fell, I was dead. I remember trying to bury into a hill in order to avoid mobs and discovering something in there that killed me. And then it was like, you have to be able to build a hut or any sort of shelter. It wasn't even a hut, actually. It was just a cliff wall with some blocks in front of it on your first day, and then come out, and then find something to eat very quickly, and then very slowly eat your way through. Anyway, obviously, it's completely changed. It's now a massive phenomenon, and my kids have played it to death. Caitlin still plays it a lot. She makes plans for her areas and her world, and they share them with their friends. They don't do it so much. They used to watch YouTube streaming of, uh, of people playing it. So it's definitely a massive cultural phenomenon in our house and in our family obviously that got me excited because there was a game coming out but the excitement was tempered because i bought them a minecraft card game a few years ago when it came out and it was pretty below average however i am hearing from third parties that this is an actual game based around minecraft which might be worth a play well that's very much the feeling in this house like yourself with your with your girls, I've got my son James who's absolutely obsessed with Minecraft. He's still in the phase where he's watching loads of YouTube videos, driving me mad. I hate them all. I, I want I want I want to punch them all quite quite repetitively. And you hate all of those people. I do hate all of them. There's, there's, no, <laughs> there's one annoying. or two that aren't too bad, but a lot of them are really annoying. And. Yeah, so obviously he gets me involved. I, I don't really like playing in the sort of normal competitive world. I, I like to play in the creative world. He's not allowed to go online, per se, into another world with other people at the moment. He's too little. But we, we, we sit there and we have build battles and things like that. And I really enjoy it. It's, it's Lego on telly, isn't it? When you get to build whatever you want and we build castles and we build hideouts and all sorts. It's, it's actually a lot of fun. I don't mind. I don't begrudge that time at all. And so when we went to Essen, obviously it was it was high on my list to get. They sold out on the first day. I was devastated, but then they got some copies in, and we were able to get in early. So I was able to just sneak it over and say, "Have you got any copies?" And they they had a copy, so I was able to grab some before the hordes descended on on the halls. And I'm really glad I did, Ronan. Because, as you said, as you alluded to, there, there is a game behind this. It's not just a license and let's throw anything at it. I think gamers could get behind this. And the reason for that is the way that it scores. You've got the exploration point, which is great, and the fighting mobs, which is it's a very simple process. But it does get you points and it does get you additional goes, which is massive in the game. And then... And putting the buildings and the types together to have that three scoring elements all on one tile 
So you've got to think about the area you're building, the material that you're building with, and then finally the type of building. And you've got to try and group them all as possible. And you've got to think ahead to the third round when you're building for the first round. Definitely gamer elements there, right? It is interesting that they've done this. And it does make me wonder how big the market is. And I think it is also an indicator that actual complex board games are moving more and more and becoming more the norm. And the median is shifting. Not, I'm not saying towards play, everyone playing ATXXs, but that the, a standard massive IP can be used with an expectation of, of success in a game that hasn't got to be dumbed down. And that is a fantastic thing for me. Now, Sean, one of the big appeals, both for you in board gaming and also for both of us, I think, when we do Minecraft with our, with our kids, is the fact that you're building something. And there is that satisfaction of when, you know, my seven-year-old got bored of building a massive wall. She went, Dad, we built that wall for me. At the end of the day, although it might take me an hour, I've got built a massive wall, and that feels cool. There you go, I built your wall for you. God. <laughs> they really can talk me into anything. Do you have that same sort of satisfaction, which would seem to be absolutely necessary to, to feel at all like the, the base IP? You're not. It's not really with the individual things. You're thinking about building up your area and how that builds together so you do have the blocks and they're big big and they feel like they really feel good in your hands the big thick blocks of wood you do have that element you do have the the mining element where in you are mining for certain types of goods and you can only get them once you've dug into that cube a little bit you definitely get that feeling maybe not as 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 much as you you would think but the fighting of mobs, I think, is definitely thematic. Mobs. <laughs> <laughs> the fighting of the creatures is definitely thematic in the game. So you, you, when you do defeat them, you do get something, a reward for doing it. It, it does feel like Minecraft. The, the buildings are all there. The biomes are all there. Apparently, according to my son, the biomes were only introduced post the original Minecraft. They weren't always there. And... Yeah, I, I definitely got a feeling for Minecraft playing this, Ronan. I love that James knows what was in original Minecraft. Must have been at least like 10 years before he was born. Yeah. I something it's pretty old. <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm happy that this is a decent game. I am really looking forward to trying it with the kids and seeing the reaction. Again, my slight concern is I'm not too sure about the crossover off because Caitlin's into Minecraft, but not so much into deeper board games. How big is this market area? How successful is it going to be? It's going to sell a lot. How many people who bought it are going to get what they expected? But I'm, it's, for me, great, fantastic. I'm, I'm great that it is such a, a good and decent game. Yeah, that, that, for me, that would be the the slight concern. Families going in there who who have a vague knowledge of Minecraft and think it's going to be a really simple game. Maybe pick this up and go, oh, that's a bit complicated for us and put it on the shelf and it doesn't see the light of day again. I definitely think gamers will enjoy it. I think people who are really into Minecraft will enjoy it. I think that's where the market lives. And certainly myself and Natalie, who was very, very reluctant to play this because she thought it was going to be absolutely hideous and she only played it because James wanted to play it. And she turned around and said, actually, I played that again. That was really good. So that, I think, is the, the market they want to go for. That, that sort of games, games literate crossed with Minecraft literate people and it's a definite keeper in our collection that's minecraft builders and biomes okay 
Next one is a game that I first played in the Essen Halls on the Thursday and I was running around with Rachel and a random group of people and then it stayed in my mind so much and we had so many games I still felt I had to go back and buy this and it is Rumble Nation. Two to four player game, takes about 30 minutes to play, it's from Yogi Shinichi and published by Hobby Japan. The game is played on a board which shows a very stylized version of Japan split into 11 different areas. Beginning the game, you're going to seed those areas randomly with tokens that number from 2 to 12. On your turn, you get to roll three dice. You may re-roll them once and then you're going to have to use them. Or you can take a tactics card, but there are only enough tactics cards for one each per game. And the tactics card is going to let you move the soldiers. Why am I talking about soldiers? Well... When you choose to use your dice, which is the vast majority of your turns, you're going to look at the numbers you've rolled. When you're going to add, of those numbers, you're going to add two of them together. That will tell you the area between 2 and 12 into which you're going to place your cubes, which represent your soldiers. And the dice that is left over is going to tell you how many cubes you can put in with a 1 or 2 land, you put in 1, and a 5 or 6 land, you put in 3, and you can work out the rest yourselves. The tactics cards, like I said, will let you move some around yours or others under certain conditions or reclaim some of your cubes back to your board. Now, we can carry on doing this, round and round and round and round the table. At some point, someone's going to run out of cubes. They will claim a sword tile. And the tile that they claim will have a number of swords in equal to the number of players. So in a four-player game, they'll take the four-sword tile. Next person to run out will get the three and then the two and then the one. Why are they getting sword tiles? Because once everyone has placed all their cubes onto the board, we are going to score the board. We're going to start in area number two. We're going to see who's got the most cubes in there. If there's a tie, it's broken by who's got the highest sword value tile for finishing putting their cubes first. Whoever's got the highest is going to take the two point tile, the number two, the main number two, that's worth two points. Whoever comes second, as long as you're playing with more than two players, is going to take a one point. It's half the value rounded down off the area of the area, and they will get a bonus in points for being second. However, whoever won then gets to reinforce every area adjacent to the area just one with two reinforcement cubes as long as they are present in the area and obviously it's only going to have explode upwards so if the two it will go into every area from the three it will go into all the areas around apart from the two because it's already been scored from the four five six seven eight nine ten eleven onwards they will spread out and it's a way of getting a massive number of extra cubes on there and that reinforcement that explosion is the key to every decision you're making in the game. By the time you get to area 12, if that has been surrounded by five other areas, there's been five reinforcements which can affect that area. So when you finish putting cubes on the board, that is not the end of the story. Sean, Rumble Nation is one that I'm becoming a bit of a, a missionary for because I really enjoyed it on that initial play. And I've continued to enjoy it, so... I'll put that out there. It's incredibly quick to teach. So when you start off with people, you're saying, this is it, this is what you're doing on your turn. But unlike a lot of very simple quick to teach games, the gameplay emerges and you start to understand because every game starts patternless. Yeah, this it was quite a hard sell to me, man. You, you mentioned it to me and you, you took out the board. And I just, it just didn't seem interesting at all. Is only when you sort of start getting in an understanding and you've made a couple of mistakes that you start thinking, ah, oh, I really should have put there. And then I could have expanded into those areas. And when somebody else does something clever, oh, right, right, get, yeah, that's how that she or he has manipulated that and done that. 
and then you start thinking, okay, there's a lot more going on than I first thought. 30 minute game, incredibly quick to teach. As soon as you get 10 minutes into it, you think there's a lot more to this than I first thought. Sean, what is there not to love about the game? There's so many little things that are clever, like the fact that the swords break ties. So in every area majority game, you want to be able to win ties, right? However, if you've put all your cubes out quickly, everyone else can then obviously respond to what you've done. So there's tension there to it, the fact that you know the, the, the way you end the turn is variable. Lots of little things that I find enthralling over the course of this quick game. Yeah, just uh, little things but that are simple to implement but have that sort of depth of thought and have echoes into the rest of the game. So the the one off little power that you can you can choose to use again it, it seems really simple. There's only is it four of them lined up and you get to choose one of them. One per player. Oh, one yes, per player. So yeah, however many yeah. you're playing with. I see the benefit of them, but when do I use them? And if if I don't use it now, somebody else is going to get that before me. But at the moment, it's not the optimum time for me to use it. So just that one simple decision gives you a little bit of, not agony, but a little bit, oh, consternate, shall I or shan't I moment. Yeah, isn't that what life is all about? All the shall I or shan't I moments. (laughs) I always seem to get them wrong. Yeah, I mean, I've got nothing else to say about it. I I just keep, I couldn't hide the fact that I absolutely love it and think it's brilliant for what it is. Your thoughts? Because I knew you were sceptical when I introduced it to you. Yeah, really really strong little game. I am considering purchasing it for myself. I think it would be a perfect game to take to a LobsterCon or or a GearStones. I think it would be a slow burner. By the end of that sort of two, three, four days, whatever you... I think everyone would be on board and playing it. I think, yeah, it's a very strong game. I agree. I think it's a game for everyone that you can enjoy. It's not got massive depth, but it's so quick that what it's got is absolutely overfilling with decisions. Small ones that come together into a, a whole coagulates into a really strong gaming experience. So I highly recommend to you Rumble Nation. Sean, you certainly won't be horrified if you play it <laughs> nice segue so my game is horrified <laughs> is it oh that was lucky designed by the wonderfully named prospero hall it's a group of people mate is it a group of people oh yeah 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 i found i thought that was someone's name as well but they're designing loads and loads of games it turns out it's like a designer conglomerate studio I, yeah designed by the wonderfully named group of people <laughs> <laughs> prospero hall and coming from Ravensburger. So, very quickly, Corrified is all about those universal monsters from from way back when. So you've got your Frankensteins, your Draculas, your Wolfmen, your Mummy, etc. And it is a cooperative game where you're all gathering together to try and defeat the monster. Now, the board itself is filled up with items and they're in, speci- in specific colours. You're moving around the board, picking up these items. Why are you picking up these items? Because you are using them to either defend yourself against the monsters, which are are roaming around the board, or you're using them to defeat the monster. Each monster will take a unique way to actually defeat it. So the two that spring to mind are the creature from the Black Lagoon needs different colored types of items. And you go to his home, and you, you spend those, and you're going to move a, a boat along, and when the boat gets to the end, then you can defeat the creature from the Black Lagoon. Dracula has various crypts where he keeps a coffin, basically, and you're going around and you're using a certain type of colour 
of item to smash those crypts so that he has no refuge. When you've smashed them all, then you can face Dracula himself and you can you can have a battle with Dracula. You are all working together because there are other things happening. There are people being introduced into the game and if the monsters get too many of them, you're going to lose. So you try to shield them from the monsters and get them to where they need to be. Every turn you're going to flip a card and if the monster symbol is there, the monster that's on the board is going to activate and they're either going to chase after you or do something to interrupt your play or do something nasty to you. And this is the way that the board actually gets seeded with those different items as well. So very, very simple gameplay built up by the different ways that you killed the monsters, built up by the interference of the villagers wandering around and having to protect those. And it all comes together, Ronan. And it was it was all very highly, highly publicized coming out of Gen Con this year as one of the two get games and people were sort of raving about it. I'm going to let you come in first with your initial thoughts because I don't think you've played it. I haven't played it yet. It was one of the two get games, but we're not able to get it, Sean. <laughs> Indeed. I had to get mine from the American Amazon. I actually had it shipped over. It was actually quite cheap to get it shipped over using American Amazon. I'm interested in it. Um, I, I've seen, you know, Abbott and Costello and the, and the actual old horror films and we grew up with them and uh, your man Chaney and all the rest of it but the Gozi so they're definitely in that consciousness from youth of these are the versions of those monsters and the fact that you're using them and that they are a threat I think is a great hook to get into a co-op game first of all so it would get me interested almost I know every a vast majority of co-op games seems to get compared to Pandemic. And a lot of people say it's just Pandemic with the dirt, the dirt, the dirt, which to me is 95% of the time a lazy comparison. But in this case, I keep hearing it. So I have to ask you, is this just Pandemic with a Wolfman in it? Or is the gameplay different to that? That was a loaded pause, meaning (laughs) there's some merit in it. I can see where... where some of it comes from in that you're turning over a card and not not every time a certain area is going to activate. So in this case, not every time a certain monster is going to activate. And there's times when you, you really don't want them to activate and, and it's that turn of the card that's, oh, it's, it's that moment of will it, won't it. Can you do a proper blood-curdling scream for us? <laughs> <laughs> that rather than just an, oh. And ah! Beyond that... Yes, you are. I mean, you're moving to lo- from location to location. You're not really clearing things. You're picking up items to carry and to bring with you to do certain tasks. And yeah, it does. That doesn't really feel like in pandemic. You're just clearing areas to, to empty them. This one, you, you, you're actively using the items you pick up and you're taking them somewhere to do something. That it didn't really feel thematic in itself. And the monsters themselves doing their individual things like Frankenstein, you have to unite him and the bride of Frankenstein because they start off separate and you want them to get together. The wolf man is going to hone in on one player. So you're defending that one player, making sure they don't get sort of mauled to death. 
and you're, you're trying to do the task and they're frankly running away and trying to do what they can do. As I said about Dracula, you're trying to get one player, maybe two players to go and smash those coffins as quickly as possible so you can take him out of the game. So uh, the Invisible Man can pop up in random places. So it's all really thematic and that's where I don't get any of the pandemic. This is, it, it just feels... It feels like one of those universal films where you are going from like the campsite to the old haunted barn to the the church to the town hall, and you're picking up things and they're chasing you. So, mm, it was el- elements of it, but not not totally. Wow, that's cleared that up nicely for me with your yes and no answer. <laughs> <laughs> right, I've got two other things for you to go on before you you give us your full uh, <laughs> spiel on it. Difficulty. There's been some questions raised. I believe it varies with the monsters. How easy did you find it? Did you feel like it needs to be more of a challenge? Because that's what I've heard. But then, it does it give you any sort of a guide on if you use these particular monsters or this number of monsters or this combination of monsters, it will make it a trickier or easier game for you? Exactly that. It tells you start with Dracula and the creature from the Black Lagoon. They're the two simplest to, to work out how to defeat. And you can ramp it up to three monsters if you don't think the difficulty is hard enough. It will tell you roughly how hard each monster is. So if you put like the two hardest ones and that might be hard enough for you, you might want to throw another one into the mix. It definitely has a scale to it so that you can ramp up or lighten at your own uh, ease. The last thing really is that component quality reports back to Gamepit HQ suggest very varied and uh, I think it was Tony on the Secret Cabal, don't quote me on that, but might have said they're the worst cards he's ever played with. Hmm. Component quality isn't great. Uh, Ravensburger sometimes don't produce great components we know this uh the cards are very thin the the miniatures themselves are, pr- are pretty poor some of the components are quite clever in that you when you're getting the monster boards out the the reverse of them has a, a turn aid so you don't obviously use all the monster boards so you're saving space by having the turn order and the, t- the player aid on the back of the other monsters but yeah generally it looks nice, but it does, it's not great to play with. A lot of people are swapping them out for the Funko. There's Funko versions of all of those monsters, and a lot of people are, are swapping them out for the Funko versions to make it a little bit nicer to play with. Okay, so not great components. Is like Pandemic, but isn't like Pandemic. Feels very thematic overall for you, Sean. Horrified. From my perspective, I heard so many good things about this coming out of Gen Con and people were raving about it. I'd heard Matthew Jude who'd been to Gen Con. He was saying, oh, it's a really great game. It's one of the, one of the two get games and you, you have to have it. It'd be brilliant for James. He was right on one of those aspects. Maybe because of the pop, the hype, it just didn't live up to it, Ronan, for me. Just it, it was good, but not as good as I was hoping it'd be. It's very simple in terms of what you've got to do. Yeah, it throws some curveballs at you. Yes, it can be... The tasks themselves can be difficult if the wrong cards come out. But in terms of the actual cooperative element, it's very simple. You do this and I'll do that. And there's no real cleverness in what you're doing. But on the flip side of that, James absolutely loves it. It's right at his level right now. He was desperate to play it when Halloween was recently and he wanted to play it that night. Our perfect game, Daddy. Let's play Horrified. So he's really enjoyed it. 
he's the main reason I got it. So I would say it's a success. I can take it or leave it, Merlin. I am surprised. I thought that was going to be more positive from you there, I'll be honest. I think it might be the hype. I think people hyped it up too much and I was expecting wonderful things. I think give it another few plays when when that's gone away and I'm, I'm seeing it for what it is. I think I'll probably say, yeah, it's actually a pretty decent game. But as I said, it's a success in that James loves it. So it's a winner. Okay, good. Right. That's the end of our first half. I didn't realise we're in a bit of a an IP run here, apart from Rumble Nation. And we'll be back with another IP conversion to board gaming. Ooh. Okay, we're back now, and Ronan's going to introduce our next game. Ronan? It's Jetpack Joyride, a one-to-four-player game taking around 20 minutes to play, designed by Michal Golubiowski and coming from Lucky Duck Games. Our second one from them this episode, I didn't realise, Sean. Anyway, Jetpack Joyride is an app that was wildly successful in which you're running from left to right across your phone screen, usually, or any old device you like, trying to go as quickly as you can and collect things and avoid trouble. And the way this has been transferred into tabletop form is that there are five types of polyomino tiles. They are all put into a pile in the middle of the table, and the number of them is player number dependent. And each player is going to get a set of four boards which show a different area. You're going to be, in real time, once the game starts, picking up one polyomino at a time and laying it to start from off the left hand side of your board going through the five rows of your boards left to right putting the polyomino's looking to avoid hazards to hit coins and to get to the end because once one person has made their route all the way across left to right across the four little boards then we're going to finish that round and we are going to score points we're going to score points for the coins that we have hit for each round, there's going to be three different goals out that might want you to run across the ceiling or along the bottom or be near to scientists or, or do all sorts of different things. And you're going to score points for, or you're going to lose points rather, for hitting any hazards, be they missiles or laser barriers that are printed on your boards. When you're done with one round, you flip the, the boards over. When you're done with the second round, you pass them all along because each of the boards come, there's like four areas, there's a one, two, three, and four that you get. However, they're double-sided and there's various ones of each one. So you don't know exactly what you're going to be running across. Also, in the in between rounds one and two and two and three, there's going to be a draft for some gear. And whoever has scored poorest in the round the previous to this is going to get first choice of a set of cards. And then you do things like ignore certain types of hazards or score more points or give you a boost of being able to lay two tiles before everything starts or whatever it may be. Sean in Jetpack Joyride, they've taken an app that was fast and furious and turned it into a tabletop game that is fast and furious any thoughts okay so lift, lifting the veil straight away this game was not designed for me i i found the app frustrating i don't like real-time games and i don't like polyominoes in games so other than that it's, it was a surefire winner but it just doesn't hit any of the buttons that makes me excited about games at all. The only thing I do like is that sort of almost catch-up mechanism because not everyone is going to be as fast or as quick as in placing those polyomnos and avoiding things and getting the right pieces in that real-time element of the game. So it allows them to a little bit of a step up in the middle of the game. So I like that. It's interesting... 
actually you mentioned that because the balance of rushing versus taking your time is quite interesting in the game. You do have to be quick to some degree. You're, if you're only halfway across your board, you're not going to score as many points as a person who got all the way to the end. But by being a bit behind them and not going crazy, you can pick up more coins, you can hit the goals better, and you can score more points than them. So I like the fact that going really slow is not valid, but going just mental out fast is also usually not the best way to do it. Also, the fact that the game varies depending upon what gear you've picked up and what the goals are. So even though you are playing on a set number of boards, and there's some variety in there, how you traverse across each board is going to be different depending upon what's come out in each game. Quick question. When you when you pick up uh, Polyanimino's piece, do you must you place it or can you put it back in the pile? No, you can put it back in the pile, but you can only ever have one in your hand at any one time. So you could see that somebody's desperately looking for a piece that you've got in your hand and just sit there holding it for a few seconds. Um, you don't have time to do that, but no, you could okay. if you want to. It would be completely <laughs> counterproductive. The game's quicker than that. Uh, also, you can re- you can retrace your steps. So you can go backwards, but you just have to take them off one at a time, and then you can replace again one at a time. Right, okay. So it allows flexibility, but it, as with everything... You could sit there with that one piece in your hand if you want to, but they'll just find a way around it. It's fine. I'm stupid because I try and be very precise and I box myself in areas where I want a particular piece. And especially when I get towards board three and four, I'm looking, I'm going, all right, all those have been used. Because there's like two shapes that always get used up quicker. It's like the uh, the two and then the three just above it one always gets used up for whatever reason. Anyway, because I'm not the best at this game. Any other questions before I tell you what I think of Jetpack Joyride? No, that's it. I'm, I'm glad you've done it in this episode so I don't ever have to play it. <laughs> right. <laughs> it does exactly what it sets out to do. It's a good implementation of the app. The app generally... Now, sorry if you're an adult and you play a lot of Jetpack Joyride, but 8 to 12-year-olds is who I see playing it and that's who I see this board game aimed at. It's got that speed. It only takes 20 minutes. You're constantly doing stuff. You get to do a draft so you feel a little bit in control of your own thing and also there's that competition aspect but it's not devastatingly hard and if you do lose the first round you can come back and win the second and the third if you've got a a group of fairly evenly matched players it's got replayability it's its own puzzle it's its own thing it's very successful it's not deep it's not a filler for gamers it's oh i have a group which likes that real-time quick competitive thing which is here and gone and it's been funny and we're all jazzed up and we're ready to go so that's what Jetpack Joyride is. Successful implementation, but buyer be warned, you have to have the right group that wants to play that sort of thing. Very good. Okay, so my next game, uh, hot from Essen, is Pappy Winchester, designed by Jeremy Pinget and from Blue Orange. So Pappy Winchester is essentially an auction game. There are 19 plots of land on the board in front of you, and you're going to have 19 auctions for those plots of land. Each plot is going to have a token on it that's going to give a certain bonus. Some of them have face-down cards, the the mines, that are going to yield different amounts of money. Uh, if you win that plot of land, you don't know, because obviously you're mining. Uh, there's a train and a boat on the board, and you get to move those. And when you win certain areas and have the train or boat next to those areas, you're going to get more money for doing so. You also can take money from the saloon. When you win a bid, all the bids are insular in that the money goes to the other players. If there's not an even amount, it goes in the saloon. So there's variable amounts of money available in the saloon. And it's quite simply, you turn over a token, and that token's going to show you a plot of land, then you're all going to bid on that plot of land. 
The thing that sort of brings it together is that there are communal and private objectives that you are trying to fulfill. Some of them are to have certain amount of lands together. Some of them are to have certain types of land. So there's like desert and grassland and forest, etc. And you want to certain types of those. And some of them are to have certain buildings like stuff land around the saloon etc and and moving on from there as i said some of those objectives are communal and everybody can see those and they're one off once you've achieved it you take it away nobody else can achieve that and some of them are private so you're kind of guessing what other people are going for if i see that natalie is hoovering up all the grassland i might have a cheeky bid into the next grassland auction because i know she wants them just to try and stop her scoring as many points as she can that's effectively it, Ronan Pappy Winchester. Okay. Uh, it looks like it's a nice presentation. It looks like it's got quality components. Does it really play in 40 minutes? And how are the bits? I think it's overproduced for what it is. You've got this massive cardboard train, a massive cardboard boat that are just there to move along the track and move along the river one step at a time just to show that they're adjacent to things. They look nice, but did it really need it? Probably not. It does play in 40 minutes because it is very simply, here's an auction, I bid this, blah, 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 go round. Okay, here's the next auction, blah, 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 get what you get, etc. So it does play. I said maybe 40 minutes to an hour, depending on how quickly people are playing it. it certainly looks nice, and it does play quickly, Ronan. Okay. The fact that your bid goes to the other players, how much of that was a consideration and how well did it work? Because it's, obviously it's not in every auction game. It's something that in my very first game of this that I, I used to my benefit. I didn't win many auctions, but I was able to just tickle the auction up enough by strategically bidding, shall we say, so that I would get a lot of money from the other players. And when I desperately wanted an area, I had plenty of money to, to bid with. So I was able to win the game by just doing that, really. So it is definitely a consideration, and it's definitely a way that you can win the game. I suppose it does add an extra facet to the game. Okay. There was a thematic disconnect that I noticed from afar, that the theme is about the money buried, but tell me if I'm wrong, the buried money doesn't score so much when compared to actually fulfilling your objectives. Off the top of my head, I think you can get up to seven seven thousand dollars or whatever they are so and the objectives themselves can reap you sort of 15 20 so yeah the buried money certainly isn't to be all and end all i didn't get any him as i said in my first game i went for it in my second game and i won the first game lost the second game so i think that tells you that's what you need to know yeah that final thematic disconnect to me just there's nothing to pull me in i didn't have any interest in playing pappy winchester I'm not sure that it all comes together and makes that much sense. So, Sean, you're going to have to persuade me to part money on this one. I'm afraid I'm not going to be able to do that, Ronan. While the fact that it plays quickly, I think, is definitely a bonus to it. I think there's nothing really to it. I think it can get frustrating losing auction upon auction, even though you're getting that money. And then it's... The very simple deduction in trying to work out, you'll work out within two or three goes of auctions what people are after. The first thing they'd be big on and try and get 
well, okay, you want forests. There's no real skill to it. I'd play it. I don't. I wouldn't own it, and I certainly wouldn't recommend it to you, Ronan, because we've been spoiled recently, Ronan, with auction games like Raccoon Tycoon and QE, which is a fabulous auction game. And this one just didn't sit as well as those by any any stretch of the imagination. Maybe it's because I've been spoiled, but I can certainly I'll certainly forget Pavy Winchester once this review's done. I don't think I'll ever think of it again. Matthew himself, although he quite liked it, it wasn't one that he was particularly bothered about keeping. And yeah, Pappy Winchester, it's another middle of the road meh for me. Damn. Okay. The next one for me is Eco's First Continent. It's a two to six player game, allegedly taking 60 minutes. I'll put a plus next to that, certainly for your first game or two. It's designed by the prolific recently John DeClaire, and it's from AEG. In Eco's The First Continent, the players are going to be building up a continent which starts with four tiles and a couple of features in play. During the course of the game, you're going to be adding sea, grass and desert tiles to this setup. They're hex tiles to build up the continent, but also these features because you can add mountains and trees to these tiles. And from there, you can also add various types of animals onto there, looking to score the most points for the end of the game. Now everyone starts with a hand of cards. You can draft them or there are suggested setups. You're gonna start with three of those cards in play. One player becomes the Harbinger and they draw a tile from a bag. And there are lots of these element tiles. They come in various numbers. Everyone's got a guide to which are the most numerous. And when that tile is drawn from the bag, the Harbinger declares it's this, whatever you wanna call it, water or grass or a Triscuit or whatever. If you have that symbol down the left side of one of the cards you have face up in front of you, you may place one of your power cubes to cover that symbol. If you do not have the symbol or you choose not to, you may twist your start tile and eventually after some twists, you can do things with your start tile, which I'll come back to because when you place the cubes over the elements on cards in front of you, when you fill them up, you trigger that card. What's it going to let you do? Well, it's going to let you place the various elements into play, be it the tiles, the features, or the animals. It might allow you to move some animals around the place. It might even allow you to remove some animals from play, and it might give you extra symbols to help you use your power cubes to cover up more cards to trigger off and make you closer to taking actions. By doing all of these things, you're going to be looking to score points. Now, how do you score points? It depends on your cards in play. Some cards will give you points when you put tiles into play. Some will give you points when you put trees or mountains. Some will give you points for having groups of animals. Some will give you points for having separated groups of animals. Some will give you points for using your shark to nom, nom, nom around the sea and eat all the fish. Some will give you points for having massive herds of hippos which take over the sea and the land. They're lots of different ways of scoring points and it is how you deal with your cards you have from your hand and which you draw put into play what the other players are doing how the content is forming and how you're going to be able to trigger off that to score points which will dictate how well you score i mentioned twisting your start tile when you twist it to a certain point it's only square so it's not that many twists you can either gain a card meaning you draw two cards from in any variation from two piles some of the cards are more biased towards building up the continent and some of them more biased towards scoring points for what's on there and taking actions or you may take a power cube at a certain point or you may play another card from your hand to add to that initial tableau of three now these cards will get spent because they've only got a certain number of uses to them every time you trigger them and use them you twist them once clockwise depending on how many leaves the code is on the card at some point you have to throw it away so you will have to churn through your cards in order to win the game how do you win 
One of the tiles, in fact, two of the tiles, in fairness, in the bag are wild cards, which means you can put a cube on any symbol in front of you. However, that also triggers a reset where all of these tiles go back in the bag. And we also do a points check. And depending if you're playing with a short or standard game, if anyone's got to 60 or 80 points, they will be the winner. If there's a tie, we just keep drawing the tiles one at a time until that tie is broken. Sean, it is not the first attempt at a gamer's bingo, but there's a bit more to this one than there was to for the likes of Augustus. See, that was my first point. It kept being billed as Augustus with a bit of a gamerly edge to it. From what you've said and from how you've described there, Ronan, it seems like there's a bit more to it than even that. It seems it's actually quite difficult to grok on your first go or two. Uh, it is not difficult to grok. I will tell you that. Each of the individual things that happen on a card are quite simple. You put a tile in, you put a tree in, you put a mountain in. What would be difficult to grok, I would say, is how that affects what everyone else wants you to do and how that is going to score you and others points because it is very easy to be doing things here. Like, let's say, I'm building up a massive area of trees, right? I don't know... Initially, I don't know even if they've got it in play because there's a lot of cards in play, especially with more players. But I don't know if you've got a card in your hand that says, oh, score 14 points for every tree in the largest tree area. Brilliant. Please keep adding trees. I'm going to play this card at some point and score a load of points. So the playing, the rules, how it builds up is actually quite simple. How to then play it well and trigger off what's going on would be where the complication comes in, I would suggest. Okay. So... Component-wise, it looks very pretty. Are they are they all functional, or is there any any concerns there for yourself? Yeah, lovely components. Really lovely. The, the tiles are lovely. It comes with a massive bag for the tiles, which is always a plus. Bits are done really well. The very little artwork that is there is nice. I think the animal chits, some of them can only go where there's trees, some only mountains, some only sea. The indication is a little bit small where they can go, but it makes sense per the animal. So fish can only go in the sea. Got that. Gorillas can only go where there's mountains. Got that. It all kind of makes sense, which helps. But And because, you, obviously, you can't have massive chits because there can be lots of animals in play. I understand why. Um, so physically, it's, it's a real pleasure to play. The main concern being that, especially at higher player counts, I don't know what the sixth player at the other end of the table has got in front of them. And in order to play well although we're all playing simultaneously in order to play well i should know what they're doing and what they're trying to do and i don't so it would take real familiarity it would take everyone to read out what's on their cards and honestly honestly it would take smaller player counts for you to have a sense of control while you're playing ecos quick question off the top of my head run was the bag as big as the castell bag i'm gonna say bigger wow so you actually managed to get this one on your head no, no, let me show you. <laughs> that could be wrong. It could be smaller. I've got no idea, to be honest with you. But it certainly you could fit all the tiles in and move your hand around and, and there was loads of room. It wasn't like a dick, dick, oh, oh, grab one outie job. Yeah, so that, that was good. <laughs> Brilliant. I am desperate to play this one, Ronan, and it was, it was high on my list to play. And uh, I'm sure I will talk you into a game when it's come down to see you. Yes. So before you play... You've got to think, what do you expect and want? Because all this talk of it being a much heavier gamer's bingo, mm, there's, there's lots going on. The, where I would say it's not so heavy is that you don't have so much control 
on how you're doing until you get used to the game. There are suggested started hands which are as unbalanced as a one-legged elephant with an inner ear infection. <laughs> There's just one or two which are way stronger than the others. I can see that being off-putting to players. Really, the game's going to get that sense of depth when you can do the drafting, but the draft is going to take probably half as long as the whole game takes to play. So there's kind of these things here off. If you accept, we're here to put some lovely bits into play, some points will be scored, and there will be a winner. Great, especially if you're playing with more than three people. If you want a tighter, more controlled game, you have to play at the lower player count. You have to be prepared to play a few games so you get to know what cards are in play. You have to be aware of what every single player is playing. That can still be sort of thrown out because when you draw two cards, you could draw anything. And it might be I score points for mountains that no one's got any mountain building tiles. That's useless to me. Be aware of that push and pull. It can be chaotic. It can be unbalanced. But it's a lovely production and it's different. It's interesting. And everyone plays simultaneously. And it's a very quick experience. So I have got very sort of varied feelings on it there's some people going to love it there's some people going to hate it i'm in the middle towards the liking it and you think yourself whether you like this sort of a tactical quick play and interactive game that looks nice and that's ecos lovely we're moving on to one that we previewed before us and it's bloomtown from Askar harding granud and daniel skjold pedersen from coming from sidekick games it's in bloomtown you have a grid which is going to be placed in front of you. And each of the portions of the grid have a, a type of flower within them. You also have a central board that has stacks of different types of buildings. There's five different types of buildings. There's offices, there's subways, there's shops, there are homes, and there's one other type that I can't... Oh, parks. There are parks. And you're going to be placing these buildings down onto your board to score points and they all score points in different ways some of them for being orthogonally adjacent some of them for being diagonally adjacent some of them for having different types of buildings around them etc the the twist to this is when you place a building you start off with two you must take a building there's always one face up from this corresponding flower on the on the selection so if you place a building on a on a rose you must take from the rose stack so you've got to plan ahead your buildings what you want you can see what's coming up there's certain times that uh, some different discs are going to come up and they're going to be placed on top and these are additional scoring for each of the types of building and there's two of these tiles for each of those. And the, when the first one comes up, it just gives you a heads up that you can use your personal player tokens to be able to activate that scoring yourself. When the second one comes up, it's going to activate the scoring for you and you can never no longer activate the special scoring for that tile. It carries on until a certain amount, depending on the player count of the Stacks of tiles have been depleted, and then you gather points as you go along. You just count up your points, and that person's uh, one, whoever's got the most. And that is Bloomtown, a very quick playing run, I'd say, plays in 25 minutes to 40 minutes, depending on the speed and player count. Right, Sean. Mm. So the question here is, I think we both agreed it looks nice. Yeah. Functionally, I had a couple of concerns about some of the shops might be too small, the indications of what colours they do and stuff. No, the shops are, are all fairly obvious. So the shops activate, uh, they score points for the colour of buildings around them. So each shop has two colours that activate them and score for them. 
So, but the colours are on top of the shop, and they're, they're fairly obvious. I don't think we had any problems. There was four of us playing uh, around the table up at Gearstones, and nobody had any real concerns about seeing those colours, Ronan. Jolly good. That is one tick. The question then is, let's say it's roughly a half-hour play. Mm -hmm. Does it fill that half-hour? Are you making decisions through the whole time, or is it something that, you know, for that first play, you're just kind of ticking over? You are, because you can chain things together. If there are, I didn't mention on on the boards, there are these sort of greenery areas. They're sort of surrounded by a green border. And when you place on there, you get a choice to either have a second go or to score the buildings twice. So you you can chain things together by building on multiple of these green areas, uh, one after the other. So you can can have massive goes in the middle. And I think people are constantly just thinking about what's coming up. If, If I take a park then people are hoping a park comes up because they're all building parks, whatever you. So I think in, in that half an hour, I think it was any more. I think it went up to the 45 an hour mark. I think people would lose interest. But at that half an hour mark, I think they are they are definitely engaged throughout. Okay, and you've played it more than once, Sean. I have. The final question then for a game of this length, uh, the fact it looks nice, you enjoyed your first play, replayability does the puzzle change each time you play or does it feel very similar you can go for different buildings and you can try and score off different buildings but i don't think it's going to change massively i've played it four or five times now ronan and i don't think i've had a massively different experience but again i'm going back to that being offset by the time frame it is a filler, and I think you've, you've got to look at it as a filler. If you've got half an hour to kill while you're waiting for somebody to finish another game or you just don't have that amount of time, I think it's, it's, a, it's a great mind workout for that time period. I wouldn't play it back-to-back, but I'd certainly for, for, it fills that niche. So I think it's a tick in that box. Well, that sounds to me like you just summed up on Bloomtown. It did, it did, and I will, I will go with that. Bloomtown, good filler. <laughs> Okay, I'm just going to roll off that because I don't want us to talk too much about this next one because it is as simple as can be, but it's another good filler. Let's get that in quick. Point salad. Two to six players, 25 minutes, Molly Johnson, Robert Melvin, Sean Shankilovich, and again from AEG. It's a game in which you create three columns of cards with three rows. Two of the rows have got the side up, which shows different types of vegetables. One of the rows has got the vegetables flipped over where they are scoring cards. And on your turn, you either draft two vegetables or one scoring card. If you draft vegetables, you flip over the scoring cards above them in the same column in order to fill in. And that's important to be aware of which scoring cards you're taking out of play by taking vegetables. The scoring tiles dictate how you score points, and it's going to be for combos of different vegetables. If I've got an onion, a carrot, and a lettuce, that will score me seven points, for example, every time I do that. It might be straight-up points just for having things, but it could also be negative points. I could draft cards that give me positives for onions, but negatives for tomatoes, and obviously then I'm going to be trying to avoid tomatoes every time I draft, if possible. One note, you can also flip your vegetables to the scoring side on your turn instead of taking them, and then that will open up different scoring. Sean, incredibly quick to teach. It's very clear what you're doing, both to yourself and to other players. It's bright, it's bold. It is as newbie and user-friendly as could possibly be, points Alan. Yeah, it's getting a lot of a good buzz. So I certainly have I want to play it. I've only really got one question for you, Ronan, and it kind of probably leads you into your summing up of the game so very quickly. Because you can score in multiple different ways. Is that just a gimmick? 
Or does it actually work? It's the whole game. The whole, it, honestly, that is the entirety of the game is that you are creating your own point scoring engine and all the others are playing, are creating their own as well. And when you start off, every card is of equal value. It's a little bit like Rumble Nation in that way. That There's no pattern yet. As soon as people start taking cards, even if they don't take a scoring card, if I take four peppers in the first three rounds, y'all are then looking at the scoring cards that give you good things for peppers and you're trying to whip them away from me so that I don't get the option to get them. Of course, there's a chance that always come up randomly because there's only six vegetables in the game. So, you know, but, but you're, you're going to look to do that. And not only do you have to do that by taking a scoring card and thereby dictating how you score, you can just draft veggies from underneath, knowing that scoring card will flip over. And then therefore, in order to want to get it, I'll have to take it as a vegetable card. Then I'll have to flip over on another turn and you're slowing me down. And there is a balance between the negative drafting and the positive drafting. But it is all about that thing of right. I'm setting up my own engine as to how I'm going to win this game. Lovely. Did you did you like it? <laughs> I think I said that straight away. I did like it. Uh, it goes a bit mental at the higher player count. I'm not sure I really want to play it five or six player because it's just just go around the table and it gets to me. Okay, what shall I do? Also, I'm not too aware of what everyone else is doing. Uh, even four player that it works well like that. But people actually need to kind of be aware of what everyone else is doing. Otherwise, it doesn't quite balance out quite as well. But we're talking about balance in a 20-minute game, which is funny. Certain cards will flip and you'll go, oh, no, I can't believe you just got that. You'll look around suddenly and someone's got 82 onions and they're scoring 82 points per onion. And you'll be like, that, that's too high. You won't get that. 10 onions and they're scoring 9 points per onion and they'll have won the game. And you'll be like, how did we let that happen? And there's little stories and little interactions and groans and cheers. And it's done very quickly. And every game plays differently because, like I say, you're setting up what you want to do every single time. There's a little bit of tension there of, do I build up these ones that scoring points at the moment or do I make myself flexible? All very mild, all very gentle, but it hits the mark that it's going for. And uh, I wasn't too sure about points third. I thought, oh, I'll give it a go because everyone's talking about it. It was worth everyone talking about it. It's not going to change the world, but it is going to be a very strong filler and you're going to have fun with it, I would suggest. Very good. Okay, the last game we are going to tackle on this Pit Spit episode is a Abomination, The Heir of Frankenstein, designed by Dan Blanchett, coming from Plaid Hat Games. In Abomination, the theme of the game is that Frankenstein's monster has approached you, his creator, to make him a partner because he's sick of living life alone and he wants wants a partner to share it with. So you are going back to work to create a bride or a husband of Frankenstein for Frankenstein's monster to go skipping off into the sunset with his newly acquired love. The game itself is a worker placement and you're placing workers to do various things amongst others is gaining cadavers. Which, so this game is not for the young let's put it this way and you're going to various places to get those cadavers whether it's to the graveyard and they're obviously going to be not the freshest you can go to the morgue the hospital and finally you can even go to witness executions in the town square and you're going to steal the bodies from there so quite a morbid game obviously the town square being the the most fresh and the graveyard being the, the least fresh and that has a a direct implication on how long those body parts last in in your storage so every every round at the end of the round everything is going to age or decay slightly and it's going to move move along and once it gets to a certain point you can no longer store it and it goes so if you haven't used it by then 
you're not going to be able to use it. What are we trying to do in using it? We're trying to build body parts. You are going to make the body parts and score points by doing so. And then you're going to try and animate the body parts by using electricity. And to use that electricity, you have to build the electricity nodes and, and get the or jars and you have to energize them to bring your monster to life bit by bit. If you do manage to get your monster complete by the end of the game, you win the game. If you've done it, if you're the first one to do it. If not, it, whoever's completed the most and has the most living parts of the monster. There are other, other aspects of the game where you earn money for doing lectures. You can go and get special powers in university, and that's going to help you along in the game. And also, you've got to be careful that your sort of negative, the negative value, because you're doing these horrible, nasty things, grave robbing, stealing cadavers, etc., you don't want your prestige to fall too far. So you go in and you can go to places where you can build up your the love and the and the respect that you have in the community. All in all, Ronan, that is Abomination. Very morose theme. And the cards and the layout of the game don't don't detract from that. It's very much in your face. Here's a dead body. And that's why I've got zero interest in that. <laughs> <laughs> I know people are into the macabre and all the stuff like that, and fair play, look, be into whatever you want to be into. As you well know, I have to deal with bodies in various states of distress and length that they have been dead because shock people, dead bodies get dumped by railway tracks. So this has just got zero interest to me. I'd like to think that the only people who could be interested were people who don't actually have to deal with death very regularly. I also know that's not true because I know a lady who's a friend of mine who works in a morgue. Who <laughs> loves themes like this. But this whole idea is genuinely off-putting. You know, abomination. You definitely people need to be aware of how much they've tried to make the theme realistic, but only in a cartoony way realistic before they go into this game. Yeah, I mean, you just think uh, amalgamation of Birkenhair and Dr. Frankenstein. And that's pretty much what you've got here. You've got the grave robbing aspect and the, the body aspect. And then you've got the trying to re-energize the body to bring it back to life, etc. And putting these various body parts together to create a living being, essentially. So, yeah, it's it, it's not it's not for faint hearts or people who would deal with this <laughs> right <laughs> next concern if i were to be concerned any further would be length and reports that this comes in as a very long game i've only played this one two player ronan but and it certainly didn't seem overly long in itself it, it took about an hour and a half an hour and 40 minutes i suppose but that was just two players. I suppose when you add in the factor of other players, you're going to increase that by maybe half an hour a person. So it does start to build up then. My concern and my overwhelming concern, and the reason that I don't rate this as a surefire hit, I enjoyed getting the resources and, well, enjoyed. I, I appreciated getting the resources in and what you had to do. And I thought that was a fairly tight gaming experience. We'll talk about replayability later, but right at the end, when you are animating that corpse, you are rolling dice. So you are going through a big, long process of getting bodies, harvesting the bodies, 
bringing those bodies into your laboratory, trying to keep all your dials so that your respect and what have you isn't going too low uh, in, in the community. Doing all of that, then trying to reanimate them, you have to get things in place to reanimate them. When that comes to it, when you reanimate them, you roll a die, you can reanimate them. It all works perfectly. Brilliant. Nothing might happen. Okay, I've gone to that and then I've, I've kind of failed. Or you can have a disaster and everything resets a level. Not good. So I've lost that leg that I've been spending two rounds working on building. I've now lost it on the roll of a die. The plaid hat effect. <laughs> Do you remember a minute ago when I was out? <laughs> You're double out now. <laughs> I'm now out, out. You're out, out. <laughs> I'm out, out. <laughs> yeah. He's plaid hat. You... When I buy a Flat Hat game, I'm almost waiting for that moment when I go, that wasn't tested very well. Because that is just super frustrating. Now, there are ways to mitigate the dice as you build up in your credibility and your influence, etc. Uh, within the game, you get blue dice, which give more opportunity for success. And you can roll more of those. And there are cards that you can hold back that allow you to re-roll the dice. But again... It's still quite easy to roll that that one that says, actually, you've lost that leg or you have to regress a phase. And somewhere I've got skin on it. Now I don't have skin on it. And if I just got the bare leg and the tendons, what have you, I've now not got that at all. Very irritating. <laughs> I'm going to ask you one more thing. I would desperately, because I'm so put off by like the length, this dies rolling, the theme. I just, I'm so down on this game. I'm sorry, because we should try and be balanced in some way. <laughs> but the, the only other question I came up with for you was due to the fact that you're playing through and it's all about animating one corpse. If you do that, you've won. How are the payoffs throughout the game? Is it satisfying? Do you feel like you're making progress? Are there things where you go, okay, I've done that. Oh, great, I've done that. Okay, I feel like I'm getting somewhere so that it doesn't just feel like one long slog. Without the dice rolling, let's, let's get that. You do see the body start to form and each head is different, each arm is different, blah, blah, blah. And you are starting to get together a creature that, is, that, is you, that you are building and you are, the, you've got four different dials and you're, you're building up in credibility and you're keeping your respect levels at a certain stage. There's actually, I, I completely forgot to mention, right? <laughs> you can actually, if you get desperate, you can go and murder someone yourself. I mean, I, I'm not against murder. <laughs> on some occasions, I think I could be quite pro-murder. Maybe it just went up or not. <laughs> but not Minecraft YouTubers. I mean, what's the <laughs> person would wish them in? Stampy Cat's my favourite. Stampy Cat. I don't know Stampy Cat, thank God. I think he probably might be a bit old school nowadays. He was doing it back in the day. Back in the day. Oh, look at you. Anyway, yeah, so where were we? <laughs> what was your question? Um, do you get any payoff? There is a little bit of payoff, and I was actually quite enjoying the game up to the point where I started rolling those dice and I started losing everything. Well, let's not belabor that point again. <laughs> I think you need to clarify for us, is it worth it? given how much you seem to hate those dice rolls. Well, it's not just the dice rolls, unfortunately, Ronan. So, to, I mean, to sum up on Abomination, I think for the first three quarters of the game, I was enjoying it. Then the dice rolls came in, and it just, oh, that was really frustrating. And I ended, I think I ended up winning the first game because Natalie had some truly horrible rolls, and I just felt bad for her. Like, you probably played better than me, but your rolling was terrible, so you've lost. Oh, well. Played it again and a third time, and nothing changed. Nothing about the game changed. Like there's, there's, there's a story arc that you're following, 
but that's very superficial and it doesn't really affect the game that much and nothing changed. So every game plays very similarly. You're doing the same things. You haven't got that many worker placement spaces to really go into because the main thing you're doing is to get bodies and there's four of those and it's just what freshness of body you can get is where you go. And so it just played the same and then add those dice rolls in at the end. It just feels like another Plaid Hat game. And I'm sorry to, to jump all over Plaid Hat. No, it's a character assassination at this point. <laughs> I mean, Dead of Winter, uh, for its flaws, is still one of my favourite games. I love Dead of Winter. And that's a Plaid Hat game. Stuff Fables, for its flaws, one of my favourite games. I love Stuff Fables. So they have done some games that are truly are treasured by me and my family. This one, I think... Has, has seen its last play in my household. I think Natalie still has a little bit of affection for it, but even her affection is waning. So coulda, woulda, shoulda for Abomination. Could have been a great game. It just didn't live up to, again, expectation, but even just the initial play, the initial gameplay and the promise that that held, it just didn't live up to it. So not not quite there for me. Couldn't, shouldn't, and I, I would <laughs> Okay. Enough. That's the end of the uh, that's the end of the twelve games which we've actually played, Sean. But as is now pit spit tradition, we are going to mention two current Kickstarter campaigns so that it might bring people's eyes to them, uh, or it might not. We might push their eyes away from them. But just two campaigns we've both looked at and personally considered backing. Yeah. So I'm going to kick in because mine is another IP one, which is weird. Are there more IP games coming out? Is that what's going on? Maybe it's. Maybe, maybe. It's Divinity Original Sin. This is a co-op story-based role-playing game in which each individual session is going to be based around a story element where you're looking through a storybook, multiple choice, choose your own adventure type thing, a travel element where locations get put around a circular board and each individual character decides where they want to go. And the decisions within the travel element may well lead to a large part of the game, which is going to be dice-driven combat. Now, I say it's an IP game because this is computer game-based. Divinity Original Sin was way back an RPG that came out. I'm going to guess 15 years ago. I don't know. I didn't check that, but I do remember playing it. And the other idea is that each of these games is put into a campaign system where there's development, where there are story points which will lead on to other parts of the campaign where each of the players is going to develop their own character. The other selling point that they're pushing for this one is that similar to the original computer game, there are elements within combat and by comboing different elements you're going to be able to make different things happen. The thing that I said was slightly lacking in Marvel Champions they reckon is here in that uh, the one they keep saying is someone could make uh, a character wet and then another one could fire lightning at them and it'll be more effective or throw oil and then throw fire it'll be more effective. Things like that where you can combo off each other in these elements. Also there is a crafting system in here which looks quite interesting in that when you try and craft something you get a, a number tile and you try and put it together with another number tile and if the numbers match you get to draw the card of that number and you have made something new which sounds like the nub of a very interesting idea how well developed it is I don't know. Sean, original IP was an RPG. The company that made it is a Belgian based computer games company has got the rights, and they are people who are going to be making Baldur's Gate 3, which I know for sure you're going to be super excited about. What? Us both being massive Baldur's Gate fans. Any history with Divinity Original Sin? Any initial thoughts on this Kickstarter campaign? No, no real history. It didn't, didn't ring any bells when I saw it. And I think 
when you're looking through Kickstarters, it's that initial impression. And this one, it kind of looks quite abstracty with that little circular uh, board in the middle of the, and just quite text-based cards in front of you. So, yeah, not for me. And I moved past it. Obviously, you've made me look at it a little bit deeper. That story element is obviously something that I'd be definitely interested in. The crafting, as you mentioned, interesting things going on. Again, it's like with all Kickstarters, are they going to pull it all together? I, I don't know, but it certainly has my interest now. I will be sniffing around this one, Ronan. Yeah, there's a couple of comparisons I wanted to make, and then a a, a warning or a, or a controversial point. Ooh. But we'll, we'll go with, it does seem, and it's been mentioned by others, this is not original work by Ronan Rice, it does seem to be like Pathfinder adventure card game on steroids, in that you're setting up the story, then you get those different locations which you go to. It's not a deck builder and stuff like that, but... Each you choose location, and then you flip the card and you see what happens. It can lead you into a, a board-based combat where there is some spatial element to it, but it's quite simplified. But that idea that we've got more of a context, but we are going to the separate location, Sean. I don't know how much how much does that Pathfinder aspect or about Pathfinder Adventure card game? I should say there being lots of Pathfinder games. Anyway, how much does that interest you? I think I well, I got rid of Pathfinder in the end. It was just a little bit convoluted for me, and I just didn't get on with the system. So I'd want to know that the system is a bit more sort of streamlined and. Flows. Oh, the system is completely different. We're not talking about gameplay. It's just that idea that for each scenario, there's a setup of different locations. You choose where you go, not knowing exactly what's going to happen when you go there. That's fine. That that was a bit that intrigued me about Pathfinder. Is actually the the system that they use that put me off it. So yeah, if if it's just that and nothing else, then happy days. Yeah. Okay. The other thing I th- that really caught my eye is that. And because it's a prototype that we've seen so far, I don't know how many of these story points there are. In Legacy of Dragonhole, when I was reviewing that, I was saying something that I love is there are particular things that are ticked off. And when you read a passage, it will say, have you completed D4? And you'll look and go, yeah, we have. That will open up different options to if you haven't. And the world will be dynamic around you. They have a very similar save system in that, from what I saw, there were 70 story points. I believe there's more. You will When you make certain decisions... You will cross off either, it could be 12 or 24. And later on, it will be if 12 crossed off, you can go there. If 24 is crossed off, you can go over there in different areas. And they claim that through a whole campaign, through your decisions, you're only going to see about 25% of the possible stories. Not only that, but they're going to ask people to feed in the decisions they've made when they finish the campaign. And they will look to build expansion story content based on the story choices that have been chosen most often by the players who register their choices with uh, Lynn Vander. So now that sounds great, but it also sounds very, very ambitious. Skeptic in me is going to wonder how well they're going to pull that off. Well, let me tell you now. If ever there was a games company that should get an award for trying the ambitious and failing horribly, it is Lynn Vander. Right. Oh, I didn't know any of this. Do you know any of the story behind <laughs> I don't. That? I don't. Okay. So they appear to be mostly Canadian-based, and they started off a few years ago with six members of staff, and most of this is coming from their own comments themselves. And they started as a publisher, and they immediately kick-started a whole rake of games, including a, a series called Legacy, Albion Legacy and Sherwood Legacy and all this sort of stuff. Some of those games have not been fulfilled. The story of this company, now somehow, I think under a different guise, goes back to 2012. There are people claiming they have paid for games in 2012 and not received them yet. The company themselves admit there are Kickstarters still live, more than three years old, which they have not sent the things out for. Be it minis, be it 
the actual game itself that people have been missed. They say that their organisation as a publisher was horrific, <laughs> that four of the original six have left, the email addresses have been closed down and they don't have access to emails. They don't know who's bought what from their previous iteration as a publisher. And they are started a new email address asking people to update them if they haven't got the things they've been promised. Now, a lot of this activity comes after long periods of silence. And a lot of this activity seems to be the fact that they are now linked into this Divinity Original Sin because they're not actually the publisher of Divinity Original Sin. This is being published by the computer game company behind the computer game. And it's them that you're actually dealing with. But it's clear that Ninvanda, as now a development and game design studio, are massively involved in it. They are in the videos which the games company have produced. All of the times it's being shown at Essen, BGG, wherever it be, it is Ninvanda that's showing it. So they're attempting to distance their previous catastrophes as a publisher from this new iteration of themselves as games developers, but they seem only to be interacting with their previous customers who they haven't fulfilled because it's causing a stink around this very high profile campaign, which is raising hundreds of thousands of dollars. And it is all a very twisted and convoluted story, Sean, which certainly I am not going to get to the bottom of. No, and I'm probably not even going to try because I'm out. <laughs> oh, really? Yeah. Because of that? Oh, mate, I've had so many Kickstarter issues, I'm not going to court any more problems. Okay. It wouldn't put me off thinking that this won't get made, because when you're dealing with a computer games company, the amount of money that's buying them, they've got the Baldur's Gate 3 license. Like they, This is small stuff to them. If they have to chuck 100 grand to save their company image, they'll do it, right? So I think that if you back this, my anticipation would be that you're going to get a product. My concern would be morally... Should you be putting money the way towards people who have taken money and admitted it and are saying it this week? They've said, yes, we have taken the money and no, we have not fulfilled those things. Yes, we still intend to. No, it's a complete mess. No, we don't even have a log of who's bought things. Should we be putting money even indirectly into that company? Of course, then the other side to it for me is if we don't put money into that company, the people who have originally paid for these games and not received them, the Albion's Legacy and all the rest of it, will never receive their games. So it's not going to do them any good not playing this game. But And yet, we're almost rewarding Lin Vander despite the fact they've got a very bad track record as a publisher. Yeah, it's, it's a tough one. It's a tough one. I mean, I think on a personal note, just I just don't need to be wondering if I'm going to get a product at the end of it. So I, I would be out on this, but I do see some of your concerns there, definitely. Yeah, I'm trying to sit on the fence here and not come down either side. I did play the original game. I think that a lot of stuff that they're showing off for this is interesting. My concern is how ambitious it is because this fella, Thomas, who appears to be the face of the company, is certainly not shy in coming forward with wild ambitions and then not fulfilling them. Far be it for me to at any point during this episode mention the word gobshite a bit. I would definitely not be related to this company, let me assure you. I'm torn. I really want to play the game because of my link to the original IP. And yet, should shysters be able to carry on in the, in, without seemingly no stain to their reputation? This is one for you to look into, guys. I think a very interesting game. A storied history... Make your own minds up. I still have it, but I've got a couple of weeks left before I have to make the decision. Okay, very well. Well, mine's not nearly that <laughs> that convoluted. Mine's the Great Wall, 
coming from Awaken Realms, designed by Camille Siesla, Robert Plezovic, and Lukas Wododarczyk. It's an asymmetric worker placement game that is one of Rona's favourites, that semi-co-op, uh, where most honour wins, but you're all trying to do the same Maybe things. this will be the one. Maybe or... it will. They're all trying to do the same thing, but you're, all, you're trying to do it slightly better than everyone else. The thing you're trying to do is repel the hordes of Genghis Khan from attacking the Great Wall of China and breaking into China itself. The things that you do, you're going to be doing production to get actual elements of the wall, uh, units into play onto the wall to defend it. Then the next phase will be the wall defense, where you're trying to repel the hordes, and then you're going to build the wall up after you've done that. I think Awaken Realms, as you know, always come with lots of minis, but they've actually listened to a lot of feedback in terms of they've actually got a smaller pledge level that has wooden meeples rather than the detailed miniatures that they normally supply, and that comes at a much cheaper price point. It's Awaken Realms. It looks beautiful. It's on a grand scale. They have had more hits than misses, I believe, personally, in the past. So it's a company that I do tend to stand up and take notice of when they do release something, Ronan. What were your thoughts on The Great Wall? Well, you're right. The no minis thing and just the £45 is brilliant. And certainly that, if I was going to back Great Wall, would be the option I would go for. I would start off with... There is clearly a playable version of this game in the world, and more than one, because several reviewers have got it, and we've seen videos. Why is there no rulebook available? Yeah, that's, that's always a concern. I've seen people mentioning that in the comments of the actual thing itself, saying, like, where's, this, where's the rulebook? Like... That's, that's how we get, that's how I judge your game and I think that's a good sort of 30 to 50 percent of gamers will judge it by a rule book and it's how I would as well because like okay we're on the dice tower channel I should show some loyalty here I'm sure their playthrough video is amazing and you should probably everyone go and watch it but it's two hours long I'm not gonna go watch it because I can read a rule book in 10 minutes and a first quick skim through and get an idea and go back if I feel like I want to so this is a concern from what we do know about the rules though it's 11 pages long which means that this is quite a simple work placement I don't think this is massively in depth and I think that people might need to temper their expectations as to what actual depth of gameplay is in Great Wall as opposed to what beautiful production it is. Yeah, just going back to your Dice Trail playthrough, I started watching it and it became clear that whatever rulebook they did have, it wasn't complete because during the live playthrough, they had two people from Awakened Realms on the, uh, doing the, on the comments and watching it with them and, and they were asking regular questions like, so what happens when this happens and what happens when we do this? And the Awaken Realms guys would feed in and say, this is what actually happens in this scenario. In, in fairness for that though, now obviously lots of people like that style of video. They said they played it quickly at some bit of change. It's not like they've all sat down and read that rule book beforehand and had a playthrough and learnt it. They play out of the rule book live, Ooh. which is going to present those sort of issues. Yeah, maybe. So I couldn't say for sure those things weren't covered in the rulebook they had because it's a very tricky thing to try and play a game and learn it and try and be entertaining at once. And, you know, Tom's good at it, 
but he's not going to get the rules correct every time while he's doing it. I think it's very handy actually to have someone on the other end to say, what's that? What's that? How does that work? Yeah. I wish I could have that. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's obviously why they were there doing the clarifications essentially. But from what I saw, it did seem like a quite streamlined game. It was almost like a tower defense game meets a worker placement meets a cooperative. So it is all of those things thrown in at once in a, in a very streamlined fashion. I think you're right in the, the amount of components that seem to be available on the Kickstarter page might make people think that this is a deeper experience than, than it actually is. And while you're saying streamlined, I'm going to say that doesn't exactly hit the mark because it's still quite long. Yeah, what's the actual, I can't remember, is it 90 minutes the same? Well, it took them two hours to play and from another thing I was looking at, he was saying it took him more than 90 minutes to play it as well. So 90 minutes to two hour Euro it seems like it's simple. It's got simple rules. I'm not sure that it's streamlined as we would expect. I think some of that two hours was obviously them learning the game. Um, they they took a lot of time to set it up, learn it, and get get actually into the playing. I think if somebody's taking 90 minutes to play it on their first go, I think you'll, you will shave time off that. 60 to a 80-minute game is probably possible. And then... An hour game becomes quite streamlined, I think, in my in my estimation. Wow, you've got that down to an hour via some. Uh, <laughs> so that was like some Boris Johnson new nurses maths. That was. Oh, if I ignore that twenty and add that ten and, and, and that, well, I'll use that one hour again. <laughs> yeah, I'm not sure you're getting this done in sixty minutes. <laughs> right, I'm not convinced, mate. I think it, it might be the Emperor's new clothes. I think it looks lovely. I think the No Minis ver- version is fantastic. That's what I would back. I need a rule book. If they don't put a rule book out, I'm not backing it. If they put the rule book out, I'm interested enough to read it and look for myself what the depth is and not just the shiny. And they might get money out of me, but at the moment, it's a no for the Great War. For me, I think because it's Awakened Realms, because it does look beautiful, and because I have a little bit of faith in, in their previous uh, products, I am almost in. I think that rule book is going to rubber stamp it. Hopefully, if the rule book is terrible and there's things that it throws up that I just don't, not going to enjoy it, then obviously I will, I will cancel and what have you. At the moment, I'm in, but I'm not in a hundred percent. And that is the Great Wall. It's always difficult to know if you're in a hundred percent, Sean. I always have to ask you. <laughs> okay. <laughs> that's us we're done with pit spit we're done with episode 142 episode 143 is a mystery it's going to cover some games but we're not sure which one's going to come out first yet so stay tuned for more check out the dice tower youtube channel for our pit stops and share them far and wide and let the world know that those exist sean any other business before we skedaddle no, I think we, we both need to skedaddle because we're both off to work. <laughs> London will come to a halt unless we stop recording Indeed. soon. See us out. As always, we are very proud members of the Dice Tower Network. Go there and to the Dice Tower itself for gaming, goodness galore, and of course, our pit stop videos if you wish to download we are on stitcher itunes podbean and spotify if you wish to contact us our email address is thegamepitpodcast at gmail.com and please do contact us if you've got any questions that you want answered please feel free to send them along and we'll do our best to answer them on the show we are also contactable on board game geek pop along to our guild there probably the best way to contact us because we're both regularly check up on board game geek because we are addicted we have our social media sites we are on facebook we are on instagram and we have our twitter feed at game pit podcast thank you so much for listening 
and we will catch you next time. Music by E. Aaron.